to C-Lab, the customer education lab, where we take customer education myths and misconceptions and throw them in the trash. I'm your host, Adam Evermescu. Today, I will be doing a solo episode, as we do from time to time, here on National Bean Day. Yes, that is beans, as in kidney or garbanzo or uh, baked beans, like the recent fracas on Twitter with Bean Dad. Look it up if you uh, haven't heard of it. I am sure that by the time this episode airs, people will have long forgotten about that. But oh my gosh, what a wild ride it has been. Anyway, we are doing a, an episode today that we do from time to time. Uh, and looking at our analytics has actually proven to be pretty popular. And this is our Instructional Design 101 series, where we introduce customer educators uh, or refresh customer educators in some cases, a lot of you know these already, about some of the key instructional design techniques and how we carry them into our work specifically in customer education. And as has become a, a mini tradition on these episodes, we kind of start with uh, with a mea culpa. Last time we did uh, one of these episodes, I had to apologize for a mistake I made in the previous one. And today, I have to admit an error, which is that fairly recently in episode 50, our, our anniversary special, we were doing a lightning round and I choked under pressure. I said, when when I was asked what my favorite 90s TV show was, I, I paused and my mind went blank. And I think I said Daria. I did say Daria, uh, completely forgetting that The Simpsons uh, was an iconic TV show that aired throughout the 90s, pretty much defined the 90s, I think, in terms of uh, TV shows, and which I uh, am constantly referencing in passing comments. So <laughs> definitely do not want to shortchange The Simpsons there. All right, let's get into it. So uh, today, we're going to be talking about Gagne's nine events of instruction. This is a little bit different from some of the other models that we've covered in the past. So in previous episodes of this series, we have talked about Bloom's taxonomy and Kirkpatrick's four levels of evaluation. Those models, you could kind of consider them to be models of, of evaluation, so, and, and I, I don't know, I might get a crap from this on, on Twitter if, uh, if people hear me lump them in together. But fundamentally, when you're using Bloom's taxonomy, you're using it to define what sort of output do I want from this instruction? Like when I'm designing the learning, what learning objective am I, uh, am I structuring this around? So it's, it's part informing the design and the content and how you're going to teach. But fundamentally, it's kind of what's the outcome of the training that you want or of the instructional event. And Kirkpatrick is sort of looking beyond that and saying, okay, how are we going to measure those outputs? So, you know, let's look at the learner's satisfaction and the reaction. Let's uh, look all the way down in the, the outcome or the business results of that training. Now, Gagne's nine events of instruction, I put kind of in a different category because this is in my mind, purely about how we uh, actually structure content during one of our trainings. So this really is a framework that we can use to almost sequence any training or kind of instructional program into some key steps or events that will ultimately promote healthier learning. Again, not every training that we do has to follow these nine events hard and fast. And in fact, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about how we modify some of these within the realm of customer education, but it's important to know the rules before you break them. And this is based on research that Gagne did on the conditions that uh, lead to most effective learning over time. So what are the nine events? 
I'll read them in order, and then we can kind of uh, group group them a little bit because these are uh, typically sequenced throughout an actual training event or, or an intervention. So the nine events are number one is gaining attention. Number two is the learning objective or informing learners of the objective. Number three is uh, you stimulate recall of prior learning. Number four is you present a stimulus. Number five is you provide learning guidance. Number six is you then elicit performance. Seven is you provide feedback on that performance. Eight is you assess performance. And nine is you focus on retention and transfer. Okay, so what does that all mean? Well, let's start with number one, gain your learner's attention. This is one that it's it's really easy for us to miss and to forget, but just like anything, we are going to be less conducive to learning or engaging with something if we're not paying attention to it, right? This is why um, when you read a novel, for instance, uh, or you watch a, a movie, often they'll start with that in medias res, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, That's I think that's Latin, technique where you know you you start where the action is and then you'll kind of go through the action and the the heroes uh you know escaping from the burn, burning building and then they'll have the title card that comes on and they'll go uh, six months earlier and then you'll kind of go back chronologically to the beginning of the story and why are they doing that they're doing that to hook your attention because if they started the movie or the tv show or whatever it is with the you know the character waking up and, and eating breakfast you know, that's not necessarily the most exciting place of the story to start. And it's not necessarily what's going to feel most relevant. And learning is the same way. We we underestimate the power of storytelling techniques in learning a lot of the time. And we, we think of it very procedurally. So this is one thing that is really easy to start incorporating into your actual learning design. I say easy. It's easy to commit to do it. It's not always easy to do it in practice because if you're uh, training on a topic that is super dry and super boring, you're not always going to find the most exciting thing to be able to start with. But I, I do think if you put some time into thinking about this in your learning design, you will find a piece that it's at least very relevant or a hook for the learner. So, you know, next time you're starting a course and you start with a list of the learning objectives or a very dry statement like, in this course, we will focus on blah, 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 blah. That's not necessarily going to be the most exciting thing for the learner. It's not going to be the most relevant and, and you're not necessarily hooking them. What you're signaling to them with a dry opening like that is typically, uh, this is the exact type of e-learning that you're used to and that you don't want to take. Or this is going to be one of those really dry instructor-led courses that is uh, <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna sleep through. So let's not do that. Let's start with what's relevant. Let's start by telling a, an interesting story about how learning these skills will be relevant to you, or the types of things that can be done when you acquire these skills. Or maybe even something controversial or, or interesting. Because once you have their attention, it's going to be a lot easier to do the rest of it. You could do this even through uh, icebreakers, although I, I personally prefer when the attention getter is more relevant to the actual learning that's being done. So like you, you could you could start by asking like a an interesting question to the group and letting them uh, kind of answer it could be a story. It could be, you know, sometimes you start with a, 
a really tough challenge or a problem statement for them to solve, something that you know they're not going to be able to solve uh, at the beginning of the course. And now their minds are kind of around it, right? By the end of the course, they should be able to solve this problem. There is value in some courses, especially with kind of challenge-oriented learners, of actually starting with a really tough problem for them to grapple with. Okay, so that's one thing that, that first of all, I, I just see a lot of people do not do. They skip straight to typically what is step two, which is the learning objectives. So Gagne, I think, has a pretty key insight here that learners aren't really going to care about the learning objectives until you have first gotten their attention. So, okay, now that you have their attention, let's tell them what the objectives of the course is. And most of the trainings I see, and that you probably see too, have the typical learning objective slide. By the end of this course, the learner will be able to X, Y, Z. And X, Y, Z are usually verbs. Look at the verbs. They're verbs like understand, or know, or maybe comprehend. And again, those are not super performance oriented. We talked about this a little bit in the Bloom's Taxonomy episode, where ultimately, yes, you might want them to know or understand. But a lot of the times in customer education, we're really trying to prove that we are, and, and again, this isn't just customer education. I think this is true for a lot of L&D. We're, we're not just trying to check the boxes and inform our audience of something. We really want them to be able to change their behavior. We want them to do something differently. So I encourage anyone who's doing this sort of instructional design to only use, you know, know and understand and learning objectives like that if you really really have to, because I I don't think most learners really care about what they'll know or understand. Uh, There are exceptions to this. There are are scenarios where they might. I think a learning objective slide is going to be more uh, interesting if you're really focused on telling them what it is that they're actually going to be able to do and, and why that's relevant to them. Now, that said, you don't even necessarily need to have the traditional learning objective slide. That's not the second step of Gagne's uh, model. The second step is inform learners of the objective. So this could just be an explanation. It could be kind of in the talk track. It could be something that you do as an interactivity where you actually ask learners what they want to be able to do by the end of this course. And if you have the, the freedom and latitude to shape the course around that, you can you can do that. You could have fun with it. I know some people who, and again, this depends on tone, some people do the mission impossible. The objective of this training, should you choose to accept it, is to dot, dot, dot. <laughs> I don't know if that's more or less uh, relevant than doing just a, a dry slide, but at least it's kind of an intention getter. So the goal here, though, is is really just to to inform them what it is that they should be able to do by the end of the course. And know and understand typically isn't actually the goal. The third step is all about prior learning, stimulating recall of prior learning. And this is based, again, in some of the ideas that If you are going to learn a new skill, that skill is based on top of previous skills and previous knowledge that you have. That's already kind of, uh, you know, somewhere in your brain. So this is going to be not always relevant in terms of customer education, because unlike a lot of other learning programs where we do have a stronger sense of both who our learners are and what they've already learned, in customer education, we don't always have that control, right? We're, we're typically walking into scenarios where the learners are completely unknown. 
They don't work for us. They work for another company. Uh, in a lot of cases, we might not even be doing a training where we know exactly who they are. It might be public content where the learner could be finding it on uh, Google or a search engine. So we won't always be able to leverage prior knowledge, but I think where you can do this is in courses that are sequential. So for instance, if you're doing, uh, say, like a certification or a learning path or something that might have multiple modules or multiple lessons in it, when you go to a new lesson or a new course in the path, you can review some of the previous content from the previous courses to kind of like stimulate that prior recall. You can also do it if you use levels. So let's say you have beginner and intermediate and advanced courses. It's perfectly fair game for you to talk about and to maybe quiz the learner on some of the things that they should already know in an intermediate course from having taken a beginner level course. And in some cases, what that might prompt them to do is actually go back to the beginner course. And this helps get you around some of the issues, I think, around learner self-selection. It's really hard in a lot of cases if you have labeled courses, beginner, intermediate, advanced, for a learner to really know where they should be. There are some people who know and will admit that they're beginners, but there are others who either just don't know because they don't know what your definition of a beginner or uh, an advanced person is, or they might not really want to admit it. They might say, you know, I've been playing around with this uh, this product for a little while. I think I know what I'm doing. And then they go to the advanced course and then they go, oh my gosh, I didn't realize what I didn't know. So there's value regardless in in having some way, especially if it's a sequential course or an advanced course, uh, of, of letting the learner know what they should know already. And I think that is in customer education where stimulating prior recall really makes sense. Okay, so step four, really simple, is some people call it presenting the stimulus, other people call it presenting the content. It, it's really just actually like doing the teaching or doing the instruction. And there are many, many, many ways to do that. This is format ag agnostic. This could be uh, instructor-led training. This could be videos. This could be project-based learning. I won't go too much into what this is because uh, that, that can be an entirely different uh, instructional design course on actually presenting content in different formats. Um, and there is good research actually uh, around how different formats work and uh, some principles for making multimedia learning more effective. And that's something that we might cover on a future episode of this very series. So that takes us to the fifth step, which is all about providing learning guidance. And this is, again, where we're not necessarily going completely linearly, uh, because you're typically going to be doing this as you provide a lot of the instruction. So this could, depending on the instruction that you're you're using or the format that you're using, could look pretty different. Um, let's say you're doing a live course. Well, this could be about providing some uh, coaching during the course or providing instructions for activities so learners know what to do at every point. This is actually something that is really easy to get wrong, um, especially if you're working with really large groups where you can't necessarily see everyone's faces or understand where uh, whether everyone is is keeping pace. We need to provide really clear instructions on what we want learners to do, especially during activities or question prompts or or things like that. This could also be where we provide mnemonic devices or analogies or key visuals, uh, pieces like that that really help kind of encode. The learning guidance can mean a lot of things in, in this context, but really 
It's about helping them kind of process and, and digest the learning. So when you hear about a model like uh, tell me, show me, let me try, something like that, this is basically what they're talking about. The The previous step was tell me, you're, you're actually presenting the information and it's, you know, it's on you to do that in a way that is appropriately stimulating and, and engaging to the learner. And then show me is often about providing some guidance or ways to encode that learning. And then that that kind of takes you to let me try, which is actually the next step. It's all about eliciting performance. So this is where you actually want the learner to do something, to put the skills into practice. So this could look like uh, you know a practice. It could look like a scenario-based question. It could be giving them a, a case study to work on. It could be a role-playing exercise. We love role-playing and soft skill trainings. There are lots of ways to do this, but it's the same principle as some of those learning cones that have been pretty well debunked by this point, where you know you you see you'll you'll retain ten uh, percent of what you see, but ninety percent of what you teach back. Now that stuff is not necessarily valid. A lot of it has been debunked, but some of the principle behind it is you're generally going to get better retention if the learner has had a chance to actually engage with the concepts uh, and and actually apply them in some format during the actual instruction, because that's going to help make it more relevant and is going to help them actually solve problems during the training. So don't necessarily take the the learning cone stuff as gospel, but do incorporate opportunities for practice and reflection throughout your training, because that is going to help with the encoding of the information. And then when you do that, that kind of takes us to step seven, which is providing feedback. So when you have a practice question or a scenario or uh, an opportunity to model skills, you provide feedback. So what this does is it's immediate feedback and it helps them respond to how they, they did the practice activity. So you could do this with a matrix. You could do this with you know an e-learning. Uh, it could be giving them a response like, hey, uh, you, know, you got this wrong. Please go back and look at this section and we'll tell you why. There's some formative versus summative feedback that, that goes into this. We, we can talk about that on a future episode. But I think the idea here is make sure that when you're giving your learners an opportunity to model those, their skills, give them meaningful feedback on what they're doing if you can, because the closer the feedback you give them is to the actual thing that they've they've tried, the, the more they're going to learn from it, typically. So then we get to assessing performance. So this is kind of, again, this is like formative versus summative feedback. So the, the feedback that you were getting earlier was immediate and in the moment and was helping you judge how you were modeling some of those activities. But by the end of the course, you typically want something that is a capstone that really helps the learner digest this more holistically and provide some sort of evaluation. We talked about this in the Kirkpatrick episode where this is really what level two assessment is about. This could be a test, this could be a practicum exam. It's just some way essentially for them to prove that they have demonstrated proficiency with whatever the skill was that that this training was teaching. So typically that's going to be like a test or a certification or or something like that. And then finally that brings us to 9, which is all about retention and transfer. So now we're talking about what happens after the training. And this is one that again I think a lot of people don't necessarily think of uh, when they're designing learning. Uh, a lot of the times we're thinking about oh we do the test at the end and then learning uh, is over. That's it. 
but that's not necessarily going to lead to really effective learning transfer. We talked about this in the Kirkpatrick episode too. When you kind of move from that level two, which is all about uh, measuring the effect of the learning during the uh, the training itself, you still have to get to level three, which is application on the job. What are people actually doing after they, they went to that training? Did it change behavior in any way? So that's what step nine is really about. This is finding ways for them to take it back into their work. So for example, this could be providing them with one-sheeters or handouts or job aids that they can actually use on the job. It could be providing them uh, in-time resources that they can use. Some people like to use digital adoption platforms like WalkMe or Pendo or AppQs or WhatFix. There's there's a lot of them out there to to do this uh, on the job if it's software training specifically. But there are a lot of ways. You can, in fact, you can even build this into the training itself if you have sufficient time and attention. You could have learners create reminders for themselves. You could have them create job aids for themselves. You could have them create reference materials for themselves. The more the learner is actually involved in creating these follow-ups, I think it, it helps generate more commitment. So again, this is hard to do in customer education in the sense that we, in many cases, do not see a lot of the learners after we've engaged with them. They, they go back to their respective companies and they use our software and you know, we we hope we hope for the best in some cases. I think it's great to be able to follow up with your customers and your accounts if you can, and actually see how they're applying these uh, these skills on the job. In fact, if you have enterprise customers that you have really good relationships with, a lot of the time you can actually go and follow up with them and see what the the end effect of was of the training and how they're ultimately adopting your product, and so that will usually give you some good ideas and cues for how you can make this step most effective because you can actually provide more meaningful uh, follow-on activities, resources, job aids, guides, uh, self-serve resources, whatever it is that they need to, to ultimately put these skills into practice. So that's really Gagne's nine events in a nutshell. And as you can see, in customer education, and especially if you're doing a lot of uh, virtual asynchronous learning, you're not necessarily going to be able to incorporate all of these in a super heavy-handed manner. But the nice thing about the framework is you don't need to. In some ways, it's almost a, a reminder or a checklist as you're structuring your learning to incorporate some form of these into whatever modality you're using for customer education. So you know, if you walk through some of these uh, steps... Creating a great attention-grabbing introduction, you can do super quickly. That could even be a provocative statement, a sentence, a question. Uh, the learning objectives can be really, really quick, um, especially in a relatively simple course or even an article. It doesn't take very long to tell them what the article is intended to help them do. Stimulating recall of prior knowledge. Again, this is probably a hard one to do in some formats in, in customer education, but certainly again, in a sequential series, you can refer back to what they learned in, in the previous one. You could ask a quick quiz question. Uh, then you present the content in some format. You provide guidance uh, around how to uh, transfer that, uh, that learning. You give them an opportunity to practice. Could be a quick quiz question could be a practice activity, could be guidance for them to go do something uh, in the product. Uh, you give them feedback based on that activity, uh, ideally, especially if you're able to measure what they did during the practice activity. I know we're not always able to. 
Uh, and then you provide some sort of final assessment. Again, you're probably going to be able to do this more in a course format than in something like an article. You're not necessarily going to be able to measure um, whether they can actually perform the skill if they're just reading an article. But uh, especially if you're doing a course, this is typically easy to do uh, You know, some sort of capstone quiz or assessment so they can do their own knowledge check. And then providing resources. What are some other articles you might want to read? Where are the best help resources that I can go to put this into practice? What are some job aids that I can uh, download or reference as I, I use your product or as I use your software? Doesn't need to be super heavyweight. All right, so this was another episode of Instructional Design 101. We try to keep these pretty quick, dirty, and informal. Uh, I know that there are much more formal places you can go to learn uh, the real the real meat behind these theories, but hopefully these continue to be uh, a really helpful way to apply these practically on the job as a customer educator, especially if you don't have a background in some of the deeper adult learning theory behind some of these. So keep letting us know whether these are relevant and helpful to you. And uh, if they are, we'll keep doing them. There are certainly more theories that we can do this uh, series on. And until then, keep educating, experimenting, and finding your people. Thanks, everyone.